Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. And as you're turning, I, I believe we are living in a commitment phobia world. Commitment phobia is the fear that if I'm promising to do something, that I possibly will miss out on getting something even better down the road. And so people desire to not commit to keep their options open. Commit less and less because you never know what might come down the pike later. If I'm committing to go to dinner with some other couple, like we'll just wait and see, I'll contact you the night of. Or committing to a college, I don't know. Or frankly, committing to marriage. The, the commitment phobia is very high in our culture today. Marriage rates are dropping and divorce rates are skyrocketing. And people are more and more fearful of making this lifelong commitment. The first major commitment that I made in my life was covenanting to marry my wife, Katie, in 2004. To love and serve her, to be by her side in sickness and in health, no matter what. It's by far, by far, the best decision I ever made. And it's a covenant. It's a commitment. One that I make every day. Essentially, essentially a covenant, and we're going to talk about this because this is really 2 Samuel 7. A covenant is an agreement or a commitment between two parties that establishes a bond between them and then spells out the terms of that relationship. So covenant is not a bad thing. When we talk about church membership here at EBC, we are essentially talking about a commitment between a person and a church family who are led by our team of elders. Church membership establishes a bond between them and through our membership covenant. That spells out the terms of the relationship that we will have. This isn't something we invented. In fact, if it was up to us, we wouldn't have membership because it just makes it harder for people to come in. It goes against the grain of our culture. But we feel that membership is straight from the scriptures and beneficial for the Christian. And if you read through our covenant, it's straight out of the Bible. We didn't add anything to that. It's right from what God's word says. So let me ask you a question here. I have a number of questions to kind of get your thoughts brewing. Can you be, can you be a commitment phobe and a Christian. It's not that you don't have questions or doubts. We all have those. But what is more option closing in life than following Jesus for the rest of it? I mean, that shuts down everything else, right? Let me ask this. Can God be a commitment phobe and still be God? Can God have such doubts in those that he should be committed to that he ultimately refuses to commit? Would you want to follow a God if he struggled to make commitments? If he struggled to follow through with commitments? If he was a covenant-less God? And what is God committed to? I think it's better to ask the other question. What is God not committed to? Think about that for a moment. Can you think of anything what God is not committed to? Well, he's not committed to your comfort. I don't know if that hurts your feelings or not. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. 
He's not committed to your wealth, the riches, concerning money. God's not committed to your plans. You may have come in this morning and have convinced yourself that God will do what you've planned for your life. And I have news for you, friends. That's not how it works. He would not be God if he had to be committed to your plans for your life. If he stooped that low to be subject to our plans. But what we find in the Bible is God is committed to Christians. Plain and simple. Actually, what we find, if we drill down a little deeper, is God is committed to God and to his glory. And because of that, he's committed to Christians. So this morning, we're going to continue our series in 2 Samuel, and we come to a monumental chapter in the Bible, 2 Samuel 7. A lot of understanding of who God is and his covenants with his people come back to this chapter. And we'll see that as it flows out. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thing I want to, the thrust I want to aim at this morning. When God commits to a people, it's for the purpose of bringing himself the most glory. When God commits to a people, it's for the purpose of bringing himself the most glory. And I have three points I want to cover this morning. The rejection of David's proposal. Second, God's commitment to a people. Third, David's acceptance of God's purpose. So if you're taking notes, the first and the third are shorter points. Number two is going to be a longer point. We're looking at 2 Samuel 7. I'll remind you again, if you're new or if you're regular, if you don't have a Bible open, you're, you're gonna, chances are going to get lost or daydream. So I would encourage you to grab a Bible. There's some in the pews that will serve you as we walk through 2 Samuel 7. Look at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. At all places where I have moved, with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from, you, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18, then, David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought up all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word, and it is applicable to our life, as we will see. The first point I want to tackle this morning is the rejection of David's proposal. If we go back into the beginning of the chapter, David in his house, and he's at rest. And I don't know about you, but I, I asked the question, when is this happening in David's life? Remember, I said a number of weeks ago that, that things in the timing in 2 Samuel is not always chronological, okay? This, this is not a chronological story right after chapter 6, as we can read in verse 1, he, he, king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Because if you go to chapter 8, it's going to recount David and his victories. So this is not uh, chronological in order. So why does then the narrator place chapter 7 after chapter 6? I believe it's for the significance of what we looked at in chapter 6. All that transpired with the ark coming up into Jerusalem. It's significant, and the narrator wants to connect these things for us. David learns some great lessons in that event, and the narrator brings this story next as an emphasis of God's dealings with his servant David now and forever because of his desire to have God involved not only in his life, but the life of his people. And so this is most likely later in David's life. I don't know when. Regardless, David is musing while at rest and resolves that that he wants to build a house for the ark of God. He has a palace now, so so why doesn't God have a house? And and the impulse on the surface seems right, but that was the custom of the day, really, for you to to build a house for your deity that you worshipped. And so maybe David's wrongly thinking about this and just trying to go along with the culture at hand. And so God steps in to say, you know, David, you're not going to be a king like the former kings or other kings, and I'm not going to be a god like the other gods. I'm not sure. But anyways, David is talking to Nathan here, and this is the, this is the first time we hear of Nathan. He will be a character that will come up, a major character in this book. Nathan was a prophet of God and, and the office established in the book of Numbers for the purpose of providing a check 
against the absolute rule of a king, intending to help him to rule in a way that honors the people and God. And so Nathan is sitting here, and David musing about building this, and Nathan says, go. Go do what all is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. It seemed like a good plan. But then the Lord steps in. And it seems that the word of God surprised both Nathan and David. What we see here is God rejecting David's proposal in favor of something much better. God, in essence, says to David, I I do not want you to build me a house. I never asked you to do this, for it was my plan since the days of Exodus to move about with my people in, in a movable tent. And one of the things that we learn about our God in the Bible is his nearness to his people. It could be in a burning bush or a pillar of fire or their tabernacle. But God has always been near to his people. And I don't want you to miss that this morning. He is the God who travels with his people in all of their topsy-turvy, here and there journeys, wanderings through. God is always there with them. If his people live in tents, guess what? God's going to live in a tent. If his people are on a pilgrim way, God will be a pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey. God is with his people. One minister said, in God's economy, uh, space and geography is very important. He is the God who is near. This is the God that David has. Friends, this is the God that we have. God is with us. Perhaps you forgot about that this week, though. And you've developed a a, a lifestyle that, that functions as if God is not present with you all the time. This may not be out of spite, but out of distraction and you've misplaced God in your thinking. Friends, he's there. He's with you. And for those of you have, who have suffered much this week in loneliness or depression, in suffering or neglect, in rejection or fear, you need to hear, friends, that God is with you. He never left your side. God will not leave their side, as we see. He will be there in the midst of the good days and in the days of trouble. He stoops down into the hardships of his people, and he's close to his people. You know, if we're really paying attention to this passage here in 2 Samuel, and then the rest of the Old Testament, we aren't so surprised when we get to the New Testament in Philippians 2. When Paul talks about Jesus coming down and living among us, and being with us. If you read the Bible this way, you almost expect it to happen because that's who God is. So he says he is and what he does. And God is with us. But ultimately in this story, we read that God didn't need David to advance his cause. In fact, it was the, the very opposite because God was the one who had raised David from the fields and tending his flock and exalting him to the position of prince over his people And we know and we've read and we heard that David's greatness was not because of David, but God. 
And so David ought not to begin to think that he will make God's name great by building him in a house. Instead, God says in verse 9, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. The promise that God gives to David here is the same promise that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says to, to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And this gives us understanding that, that God stands behind his promises and God is the one who makes someone great. So God will do this and more for David. His name will be great, not because of him, but because of God. And the danger for David, and really the danger for any of us, is that we might begin to think that we are the ones who do great things for God. I want to burst your bubble. It's all God. He is the one working through you to do great things for him. David is not an active initiator, but a passive recipient. And the same is true for us. See, God will commit to his people Something that we've seen earlier before in the Old Testament text, but a fresh reminder of all that he will do is listed here in this chapter. And so we've seen that God rejects David's proposal. Second, we see God's commitment to a people. There's a, a play on words for the, for the word house here in this chapter. Did you pick that up when I read it earlier? David wants to build a house for God that is a sanctuary or temple, but the house that God will build for David is not a building, but a dynasty. Really, a, a, a royal family line. That's the house that God will do for David. And this play in words is seen again and again throughout the scriptures. I don't know if you remember when you were in the book of Amos earlier this year. We saw that in Amos chapter 9. In that day, I will raise up a booth or a tent or a house of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The author is going back again to this, this picture of a house, this royal line, this dynasty. And when Amos is writing in Amos 9, he's talking about 2 Samuel 7. He's connecting the dots there. You know, the Bible is so amazing this way, so that, so that as, Sam, as this book is being put forth, you know, Samuel's throwing this football. You guys like football, right? And, and it's being caught in different areas down the road. And so in Amos, he's like catching it here. And guess what? He's going to throw it again down farther. So we see this connection all along. The Bible is not just some happenstance of things that just fall together. It was God's story for us to understand who he is and his plan for us. And so he's saying David's dynasty will be rebuilt in Amos 9. This dynasty here we read in, in verse 7 will be established by God so that God's so that David's son will succeed him as king, and his son Solomon, as we will read, will be the one who will build the temple for God. And what we're reading here, although it's never stated, is God's covenant with David. Later it talks about that and points back to 2 Samuel 7. But essentially it's a commitment to him and those that follow him in the line. Really, verses 12 through 16 are the details of what God is promising to do. I want you to look down and see there's a repeated word that happens in verses 12 through 16. Closer to the end, end of verse 13 and then 16. Do you see that word? Forever. Three times it's stated. Forever, forever, forever. As Ralph Davis' commentary so helpfully said, these promises are indefectible. They cannot fail. 
Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Skip ahead to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God stares down every obstacle and shows that he's committed to the line of David. And that God states three things that will come in as part of life to try to destroy the line. David, your throne will be established forever and ever. Nothing can stop it, not even death. That's the first thing. Death will not eliminate God's promises. Death is the first thing that approaches it. Second is sin. Do you see in verse 14 and 15? Sin cannot destroy God's promises. And there will be sin. Lots of sin. If you read in your Bible plan through this book and then 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you just see this over and against. This king did this, but he sinned and he sinned and he sinned. It, it, it gets old. But that's pretty normal for humans. But sin will not break this covenant line. And not death. Third, not even time, right? Forever. Time cannot stop this kingdom. Time will not exhaust it. There is no expiration date. It will be established forever. And so maybe David's thinking here, I I think so because he just really explodes in praise later in the second half of the chapter of praise for his God. But he's thinking, wow, what a promise that God is giving me. I want to build a house. And in fact, he's going to build me a house, a dynasty. I'm going to be king, my son will be king, and then his son, and then his son, and this line will continue on forever and ever and ever and ever. Nothing will stop it. But if you read the rest of the Old Testament, what happens? We come to find out that the earthly kingdom kind of rots away from our vantage point. It falls apart. Israelites go into captivity under Persians, Assyrians, and then the Romans. And we come to the end of the Old Testament, what's written to us, and the line of David somehow, from our vantage point, seems to have fizzled out. What happened? Did God lie to us in 2 Samuel 7? Was he not able to preserve the line? Can we trust this God? He said neither death nor sin nor time could end the covenant in this line, yet king after king, we read, fails and sins and walks away. It seems the line has ended, and you come to Malachi chapter 4, and nothing. It's, it's done. And friends, you know, the end of Malachi 4 to the New Testament is 400 years of silence. 400 years for God's people that hear nothing from their God. So you can imagine them thinking, it's it's done. Whatever promises God made, it doesn't seem like he's going to follow through. And then we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And what does Matthew write for us? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then you see this line, this fantastic history of Abraham all the way to Jesus. And then you turn just later in the chapter in Luke 1.32 as the angel is speaking to Mary. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, will be great. It will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be no end. Then Paul writing to strengthen timid, Timothy, who's pastoring this church, and he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And then in Revelation 22, where Jesus speaks of himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Friends, we have our king. It's Jesus. God did not fail. Jesus isn't just another stop along the line of this Davidic promise. He's the end. He's the destination of what all the Bible is pointing towards. This is good news. And I'm not sure any of you believe it right now. This is the best news you've heard all week, friends. He is the scarlet thread that weaves throughout the Bible. And we get it at the end. We, we see and we understand that it was about Jesus. That he was the king that they've always needed. He was the one that was going to come and make everything right that was wrong. He was to come to rescue his people from their greatest need. Not oppression. Not political leaders. It was sin. He came to die for sin. And friends, when we read this, we realize God did not fail in his promises to his people. It just didn't happen the way they thought it would happen. And it didn't happen as quick as they wanted it to happen. God is committed to his own holy and glorious character just as he's committed to his covenant with his people. What God says he will do, he will do. You know, when we as Christians recite and come together the Lord's Supper, we come sometimes to the words of Jesus in the gospel, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took this language of covenant straight out of the Old Testament, where the concept of a covenant is crucial. Now, maybe such covenant language to you sounds cold and legal, but friends, in the Bible, it's not like that at all. The language of covenant is a language of relationship. It's a language of love. That's why we use it in marriage. The marriage covenant. When God, God's covenants were used to draw his people into a committed relationship with him. And it's in this context of God's committed covenantal relationships that we find God's passion for holiness expressed throughout the Bible. In short, God was passionate for his covenanted people to be set apart unto him and to have character and lives that were like his own. This is why sin is such a big problem in the Bible. 
because sin is nothing like God. There is not the least trace of sin in God. And so it causes big problems for humans in relating to him. It separates from us, from him. And as we saw last week, we saw it very clearly with Uzzah and the ark. So friend, perhaps you find yourself in, in church this morning the first time in a long time or the first time ever. It's no accident that you're here this morning. But I have to ask, what are you doing about your sin today? It's on you. Kids that come every week, your sin is not on your mom and dad. They can't do anything about it. It's on you. What are you going to do with your sin? I mean, doubtless, even if you're not new, regular churchgoers, you attend church week after week with some sin on your mind. That's a good thing. To come in and and recognize after living out there in the world and, and to see afresh, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I've seen that in my life. And yet, probably for many of us here, because we're such a bad sinner, we attend services not so much with our sins on our minds, but we attend services with others' sins on our minds. Usually how their sin affected us. Our sins are very hard to see. They dart around in the shadows and they hide in the crevices. And yet we, as we make our way through this sermon, perhaps God's Spirit has used the light of God's Word and the preaching of His Word to expose some sins that you have hidden and put aside. Friends, don't allow yourself to think about other sins in this moment. And don't be so quick to dismiss yours, to hide it in your mind. But face it. You have to do something with your sin. And what will you do with your sin? You may believe that life here is permanent, but it's not. There will come a time when you will give an account to God and you will want to hear what God is going to say before he says it on that day. And you need to be willing to hear the truth about yourself right now so that you can live in light of that truth because of what Christ has done and be prepared for that day. I used to believe that my job as a pastor was to get up and to prepare people to live. And I've realized that's wrong. My job is to prepare you to die. To die to your sin and to be prepared to die so that on that last day when you stand before God, it's not out of fear because you haven't dealt with your sin, but it's out of joy because you're resting in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're not trusting in Christ for salvation this morning, you need to. And I would love nothing more today 
than to end this sermon and then sit down and talk with you about how Christ has paid for your sins and how you can have a relationship with him. Well, Christian believers that are here, let me apply this to you. Do you have commitment phobias? I wonder how you view your own commitments and covenants in your lives. Are you as committed to God as God is to you? Christians, are you committed to a local church? Not just signed in the dotted line, that's just a piece of paper, friends. Are you committed? Committed to people? Or are you struggling to commit? Can I encourage you just to begin the conversation with us as elders? We'd love to just talk with you. We don't have a high sales pitch. We're not trying to sell anything. We do it for your benefit. And it's for your good and for God's glory that we bring this up on a regular basis. So are you as committed in that way? I'm going to do a little more counseling this morning just because we're talking about covenants and commitment. So I want to talk to married people for a minute. Married people here, are you committed to your marriage relationship? Or have you fallen away from your commitment and you're just existing like strangers passing the night at home, roommates living together? I want to share a story that impacted me. Robert McQuilkin served 20 years as the president of Columbia Bible College in Georgia until 1990 when his wife, Muriel, was sick with Alzheimer's and he stepped down. He wrote a letter and he says, my dear wife, Muriel, had been failing in mental health throughout eight years. So it's, so it's, so far I've been able to carry about both of her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at the college. But recently it has become apparent that Muriel is con- contented most of the time when she's with me and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and goes in a search to find me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. Really, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for her in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. So I told the students and the faculty As a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me, her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of wit that I used to relish so her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continued distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to care for her. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. Friends, do you, married friends, do you think of your covenant of marriage that way? Your promise? Maybe you've fallen into a rut and just existed. Can I encourage you to communicate to each other the covenant you made before God and many witnesses today? And I will say, 
that every married family should probably do this, just as a reminder, but if you have kids in your home, do it in front of them. You don't have to. I'm not commanding this. The Bible doesn't command this. Just encouraging us as, as married folks to, to follow through with the commitment that we've made. And by God's help, asking him to help us to continue on. You know, if you read the Bible, friends, covenants and, and commitments are not a bad thing. I mean, they, they can be. So when we make a covenant and we make a commitment, we need to do that soberly, carefully, cautiously even, because we want to follow through with what we've committed to do. As humans, we're, we're not God, so we don't see every, every risk that has down the road. We can only see what's in front of us. But God does see everything. And God isn't flippant with his covenants either. God is committed to David. He's committed and covenanted with the line of David. And God is committed to us as Christians. Well, we've seen the, the rejection of David's proposal and God's commitment to his people last is David's acceptance of God's purpose. As we turn from God's word to Nathan that he comes and shares with David. The, the, the second half of this chapter, really verse 18 through 29, is, is David's acceptance of praise, really, of what God is going to do with the purpose of his life. And this really is one of the great prayers recorded in the historical books of the Old Testament. David thought that building God a house would round off God's amazing work in his life. David knew that that God had been with him, defeated his enemies, and now he was enjoying rest in his palace, and it was an amazing act of generosity now that, that, that got David to this point. He recognizes all this. He admits it in verse 19. This is no small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. And he's just beginning to understand that God had a much bigger plan for him and his house, more wonderful than he could ever imagine or ask for. And there's three things that I want to mention here and see in David's prayer as we end chapter 7. First is his prayer of thanksgiving. David was a powerful man, a man in position of a king. He was also a man after God's own heart, it says. And we see humility in David's part. He says in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David knew his place in light of who God was. He knew and was reminded just earlier of his upbringing, his status in life before God stepped in and chose him as king. And David is now floored by God's choice to work in this way in his life and his future sons. David's attitude toward his own life's achievements is subbed up well in the opening verse of Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. David is filled with thankfulness for God's sovereign will in choosing him. Can you sense the the happy frustration that he feels when he considers all that God has done? Look at verse 20. And what more can I say? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. It's like this perfect tension of godly frustration and fidelity. He, he just, he knows and he's overwhelmed with what God has done. He doesn't know what to say. 
He's, he's overwhelmed. He's floored by what God is doing for him. A.W. Pink once wrote, There is nothing like a feeling sense of God's sovereign, free, rich grace to melt the soul, humble the heart, and stir into true and acceptable worship. And that's what we read of David here. He's worshiping his, his Lord. And I think as believers, we should try to emulate David's thanksgiving here, listening to this, these verses. But second, we see that his prayer is filled with praise, too. He says in verse 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There's wonderful logic to praise. We know what God is like because of what he has done, and therefore makes his connection for us. David knew what Hannah knew when she prayed at the beginning of 1 Samuel 2. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 2, this is what Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. David knew that and, and praises him for it. Friends, God's greatest gift to the world is always himself. There's nothing that we need more in this life than God himself. Do you believe that? Has that gripped your heart this week? Has it sunk deep into your bones so that you can sing on a Sunday morning when we gather as the church of God's goodness to you and his faithfulness to you? Friend, if not, I I pray that God would help you to understand that and live that out. Well, third, we see a, a prayer for God's will. David is not seen here praying for just anything or things that just pop in his head. No, David is, is reading, is praying God's word back to God. And now, O oh Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. God, he's taking God's word and, and, and asking it back for him to do it, to be faithful to what he said. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, therefore, may it, be, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. See, David's taken all of what God has said, digesting all of it, and then praying it back to him. God, be faithful to what you have said. And so, What I learned from that is, friends, you don't have to be creative and cutting edge in your prayers. That does not make you more spiritual. We just need to be consistent and biblical. And the best way to be consistent and biblical in your prayers is to pray the word. To open your Bible when you're praying. This is God's revealed revealed will for our lives. And so if you're struggling to know what to pray for your spouse, your kids, or fellow church members, open up a psalm and pray that. The Puritan William Gurnall said, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back again upon God by faith. Taking God's word in, understanding it, and speaking it back to God. He's not offended by that just so you know. It's his word. It brings him glory for this. So if you're struggling on what to pray, our faithful prayers are prayers that are filled with God's word. And so go to the Bible and pray that to him.
Well, I've run out of time. Let me ask, let me, as we end here, and I'm just about done, circling back again, talking about commitment. Think through, friends, what are you committed to? You know, have you asked yourself that question? Ask it now this week. Where in your life have you made commitments? And then ask, how am I doing in that? God, give me help in this area. And whether it's your marriage or your family or your work or your neighborhood or your church family, where do your loyalties lie? And is God in the mix? God is committed to you, Christian. You know, the last thing in John 6, after Jesus spends an extended time preaching to the Jews and they reject him and people are leaving in droves, they're no longer committed to Jesus. Jesus turns and says, after this many disciples, John writes, after this many disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. And so Jesus says to the 12, now, do you want to go away as well? You remember what Simon Peter says? Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, that's a commitment to God. And I pray that that would be the same for us. That even though the world turns away and, and has no desire to follow Jesus, that we would follow in step. And that Christians would stay with him to the very end when God brings us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your steady commitment to us and to your glory. God, I thank you for the church. What an amazing plan that has been. And only you, God, could have thought of that. Only you could accomplish it. of saving so many different people from so many different walks of life and then bringing us together, united, under one banner, under one hope, under one God. People we wouldn't have anything in common with in some ways outside of this place. And yet we have the most important thing in common. And we're following you and we love you and we're saved by you. Father, I thank you for the church. And you are the example of faithfulness to us. And we thank you that your word teaches us, even from 2 Samuel, way back in the Old Testament, that has something for us to know about you in areas where we need to grow in our life. Thank you that you're a God who commits to us, even when we're weak in our commitment to you. And so we say the same as Peter where could we go? You hold the words of life and you keep us. And by God's help, we will stay and follow you until you take us home. We thank you now in Jesus' name, amen.